We've already set aside $22 billion to cover losses that we project will occur over the next 12 months. After that, we have $19 billion left. Uh, that said, though, we would, we'd like a bigger cushion. Uh, we'd like to be prepared for all contingencies, so we are uh, increasing our reserves. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. It is Monday, March 9th. That was FDIC Chairwoman Sheila Baer, you heard at the top of the podcast, speaking on the CBS Early Show. The FDIC, of course, ensures your savings and checking accounts at the bank. And she says the FDIC does have plenty of money to continue to do that, but she'd be happy with a, a little bit more. 17 federally insured banks have failed this year, um, and it's been a busy couple of months for the yeah, FDIC. I actually just, you know, they have this list of failed banks, and I just checked, and if I counted right, uh, in all of last year, they had 25 failed banks. So just in the first couple of months, they have 17 now. Right. Yeah, so we're on pace for a pretty busy year. Um, so coming up, we have a story of a financial scandal mixed with cake. Um, <laughs> but first, our economic indicator, um, and it is less than zero. That's, okay, that's really a range, right? But, right. And it's also a book by um, from the 80s. <laughs> um, it is also the um, World Bank's prediction for global GDP growth this year, actually shrinkage, I guess. Uh, they didn't give a real number, but the World Bank is predicting that the global economy will actually shrink for the first time since World War II. I feel like we could just like record that phrase for the first time since World War II and just sort of play it in every single <laughs> podcast we do. Sometimes um, it's worse than that. <laughs> I know, exactly. All right, uh, Alex, now I have a story about a stapler. You don't have a story about a stapler, be honest. <laughs> All right, it's not about a stapler. It does begin with a stapler, though. Uh, I was basically, I was looking for a stapler, and I, I ended up at the cubicle of my colleague Richard Harris. And among other things, he covers climate change. And basically, Richard had his head in his hands, which is really unusual for him because Richard just never gets stuck on a story. He's been known to write a one-minute story in under one minute. But this was a story about the budget, and he was worried it was in danger. He said, I'm really worried it's it's too down in the weeds. And I said, down in the weeds? That's planet money. That's what we do. That's what we do. Right. So I, I grabbed him and we did a quick interview. It's pretty interesting. It begins with uh, some good news, actually, or what sounds like good news, a planned tax cut for the middle class. Supposedly, very soon, we will start seeing a little bit more money in our paychecks, as long as we're earning less than $250,000 a year. And it's big. It's like uh, the total amount of the tax break is like over $60 billion or something every year, right? Yeah, it is is a very big number. So the question is, where do you get the money for the middle class tax cut, right? Right. And what's the answer? The answer is you get it from uh, doing something good for the climate. That's climate. another thing the Obama administration wants to do. It's all lining up very nicely for them. It is indeed. Uh, although it's, it, the, the details get to be a little bit more painful when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the idea of the, the, the climate pr provision is that basically the Obama administration is going to raise about $80 billion a year by auctioning off the right to put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It will no longer be just free to, to use the, or the atmosphere as a sewer. Basically, if you want to use it as a sewer, you've got to pay for it. So, so basically, that's where the money for the middle class tax cut would be coming from. That's right. 
Uh, okay, but there's a catch here, right? <laughs> there is a catch, yeah, because if you're going to uh, be uh, charging people to put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you're going to raise the price of energy. So everyone's energy prices are going to go up, uh, and we'll get some of that, but actually not even all of that back as a tax cut. Right, and you had this nice piece of tape from uh, Republican John Boehner of Ohio, I think, right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, let's just be honest and call it a carbon tax uh, that uh, will increase taxes on all Americans uh, who drive a car, uh, who have a job, uh, who turn on a light switch, pure and simple. So what does the Obama administration say to that? Well, it is not technically a tax. It is indeed raising the price of energy, but it's not a tax. And their argument is partly, well, we're returning most of that money to people, uh, putting it back in their pockets in the form of a tax break. So even though the price of energy goes up, people are more or less made whole, not entirely, but mostly made whole by uh, the tax cut on the other side. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense as a pitch like, we're, look, you know, we're going to raise the price of energy because we need to do this. Uh, that's going to hurt you financially, but we're going to give you a tax break to offset it. If you approach it the way we did, saying, hey, you get a tax break, then it doesn't look so good. Yeah, it's a little. It's a, there's a little bit of a shell game going on here. But on the other hand, I think it's a very, very hard sell to tell people that we're going to raise the price of energy, and uh, and you know. But it's inevitable. You can't really address climate change without doing something like that. So, has anybody done any calculations? Like, how does it work out for someone you know in the middle class? Like, they're getting a tax break. They're going to spend some more energy. Uh, are they, you know, is is it hurting them more than it helps them, or how's it work out? Well, if you just sit around and do nothing, it'll actually cost you a little more than it will. Uh, the, the increased price of energy will cost more than you'll get back in the tax cut. However, the nice thing about the system is you actually can uh, game it to your advantage and actually to the climate's advantage. And let me give you a simple example. Say you have a dirty old furnace in your house and it's and uh, you've been delaying fixing it, uh, all of a sudden the price of fuel oil goes up a lot. You think, well, geez, maybe I should get a new furnace, a more highly efficient furnace. So you go out, you buy a new highly efficient furnace, and all of a sudden your energy prices go way down. You've been incentivized by the increased price to go do that, but your energy prices have gone down and you still get the same tax cut. So you could actually come out ahead. And that's one of the things that this, that this tax system and is, is trying to motivate, is trying to get people to think, okay, I can do the same thing. I can. My house is still as warm as ever it was, but now I have a nice, clean, efficient furnace. I'm saving money on energy and I've got my tax cut. So the idea is to incentivize people to do things like that that make sense for them and make sense for the climate. In theory, though, there is already an incentive to do that because I could save money right now by fixing my furnace, right? That's true. Uh, The problem is maybe it's not enough of an incentive to uh, because the prices of energy are actually pretty low in, in, in some ways. Not for people who are very poor, which and that's actually that's a really serious issue here because yeah, you could go out, get a loan, get your furnace repair. You know, get a, buy yourself yeah, get a brand a loan. new. I need a loan so I can get a, a, a more efficient furnace. You, you yes, might, not yeah, happen, you yeah. might. Yeah. So uh, I mean, a furnace is five thousand bucks or something like that. It's not right. most most people don't just have that money sitting around to say, okay, I'm going to go out and buy a new furnace. So so there are real the idea s- is that when energy gets gets really expensive, people actually would start doing things that they wouldn't, even though they could save money doing it now. Right. It 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 turns up the heat, so to speak, on uh, to to make those sorts of changes. That's NPR's Richard Harris. Uh, Alex, I should add that he says right now the consensus seems to be that the climate change legislation uh, isn't going anywhere, at least as is. And it's not because it's too painful for consumers, but because it doesn't have enough in it for industry. It stalled in Congress last time, and it had a lot of stuff in it for industry.
Right, right. Well, um, let's uh, do a change of pace here because we know that the economic news is grim these days. And um, and we've been reporting on that grim news over and over, three times a week. Um, but we here at Planet Money aren't always out to depress you, our listeners. And um, so we have a story today that will hopefully provide a little respite from our current troubles. It's sort of a, a parable, though. I, I don't know really what it's a parable about. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll figure out after we hear it. Right. We can send out. We can. Yes, exactly. What is this a parable? What is this next story a parable of? If you want to weigh in on that, that would be great. Um, so it reminds me of both the of two things. One, the recent scandals involving Bernie Madoff and Stanford Financial Group, where you know people stole several billion dollars from people. Um, but it also reminds me a little bit of the of just the financial crisis. At, at, as a whole that sort of where the economy got into trouble by sort of creating these fancy financial derivative products that turned out to be sort of too good to be true. It takes place in a third grade classroom, the story does, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joshua Behrman tells the story. He uh, was himself the third grader in question. He was the third grader at the time in the early 1980s, which was a very important time for a third grader. Well, this was like sort of around the time when the full weight of modern science and technology was being applied to lunch <laughs> snacks, you know? So fruit roll-ups uh-huh. had just hit the scene. Right. You know, Capri Suns. Oh, yeah, putting juice in a little uh, uh, right. something other than a can. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, so let me just set the scene here. So Josh had just moved to this new school, and it was a very fancy school where all the kids had these very snacks that he's describing, these technologically juiced snacks. Um, there were chewy granola bars, Rice Krispie treats. Um, but Josh himself came from sort of a different home. His, his home was very Spartan, and his lunches um, were sort of hobo lunches by comparison. <laughs> he, in fact, he swore to me that his father one time sent him to school with a tin of sardines in his lunch bag. Um, <laughs> and no way to open it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but his standard lunch was uh, a PB&J juice, and for his treat, his father would give him a box of raisins. Hey! Raisins? <laughs> uh, I sort of was obviously jealous of everybody's wonderful lunch snacks, but also, like, sort of to add insult to injury, they would, it was kind of all flaunted um, inadvertently in front of me because everybody in the beginning of lunch would, uh, they would start trading all of their wonderful lunch snacks with each other, and they'd lay it out on this big table and sort of, you know, sort everything out, and it was this incredible like a Roman feast of processed forbidden delights that I, <laughs> I like could watch from afar, you know, and, uh, and it was sort of me looking each thing that would come out of the lunch bag was more wonderful than the next. And, and people were trading them. They were like, they were like, what was the, there was exchange going on. Yeah, they would. So everybody would lay it out. They yeah. Lay, I want to get to, this is an economics podcast and we're getting into the economy of nutter butters and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah. They would lay their, <laughs> they would lay their stuff out and the purpose of the table and laying everything out like the Roman feast was for the marketplace and everybody would start <laughs> trading, you know, and, and people would say, Oh, well, listen, I've just uh, had my fill of rice Krispie treats for two weeks in a row straight, you know, why don't I have some of the, your fruit roll-ups? And so they would trade it all around and it was actually, it was a pretty efficient system. You know, everybody got what they wanted mm-hmm. and it kind of all worked out. Uh, for them, you know, I, it didn't work out for me at all because I was totally outside of this economy altogether because my peanut butter jelly sandwich had no currency value like in this market whatsoever. What about, what about your box of raisins? Could you have gotten anything? Um, 
No, I don't think the raisins really went very far. <laughs> I mean, the right. raisins are a constant sort of um, source of uh, frustration for me because I, I complained to my dad about the raisins, and my dad would say, uh, well, uh, just um, – you know, show them that if you take the raisins out, you can blow through it and it's a whistle and it's uh, 2,400 hertz. He's a physicist. And so, and you know, depending on how many raisins in are still in the box, it'll change the 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 tone and, like, you can demonstrate vessel functions with, like, a cup of water. And it'd be like, as if this was going to amaze my classmates, like the physical properties of the raisin whistle box. Right. But getting to the language of economics, this was a non-scarce good. There, It had no... <laughs> Tradable value. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, raisins <laughs> grow on the trees. <laughs> I mean, among but is an eight year old never has trouble getting a hand on a box of raisins. There's no right. special. Right. Right. Yeah. Raisins yeah. are like dripping from Whereas, the hands of adults yeah. Yeah. at every turn. Right. What does not grow on trees is granola dips. Yeah. That needs to be, that's in short supply. Yeah. In the lunchroom. Okay, so you're, you are in a scarcity position. You are in a <laughs> crisis. There's abundance all around you, but you have nothing tradable. Nothing that can get you access to this abundance. Right. So I had to figure out something to do, and uh, I did. I figured out a plan, which was I I lied, basically. I, I, told a, I sort of came up with a false business prospectus, <laughs> which was I told them that my mother is this uh, in- incredible baker. She's a baking expert. And so, and she always bakes this cake for everybody, all my classmates at the end of the year. And the cake is so delicious, and it's the best cake you'll ever have. And can you just imagine now it's going to be the greatest cake ever? And I sort of got them all excited about this this coming cake. It's coming. And so what I said was, um, listen, that's going to be a great day. But in the meantime, I can offer you this special opportunity. <laughs> and uh, what we can do is if, say, you give me those Cheetos now, today – you can lay a claim on a stake, you know, well, on a share of this future coming cake. <laughs> you know, so you can have a deposit, you know. You can have a piece of this cake when it comes. And so basically I, I developed this sort of derivative lunchroom market for delicious cake futures. <laughs> yeah, but he, he, he <laughs> so, right. Why do I guess that he ate his capital? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, yeah. Um, there's a couple things I should mention. First, there's there's voices that you hear on the tape. One of one of them is, of course, Adam Davidson, Planet Money um, chief uh, captain extraordinaire. And then also Starley Kine, you hear occasionally. Starley Kine is a friend of Josh's and also a sometimes contributor to This American Life. Um, and then there's two points that I want to make. One, Josh's mother was a horrible baker. <laughs> there was no way she was actually going to bake a cake for the class. Um, and two, this happened a long time ago, so Josh's memory is a little hazy, and he concedes that he might be filling in gaps here and there, but he swears overall that this episode is true. And in his memory, this cake future thing, it caught on big. Yeah, people would come um, and say, you know, it was like a trading floor. It was a lunchroom. The bell would ring and all of a sudden people would bring out their stuff and sort of want to like, see what it was worth. I mean, to answer your question succinctly, I would just determine at that point what the deposit was going to be worth in future cake shares. <laughs> and so people would line up 
And they would, and I would, I would, I would sort of to keep up appearances. I was recording all these uh, sort of transactions in my trapper keeper to make it look like there was there might it's be like Bern, Bernie Madoff falsifying account <laughs> statements. Yeah, or falsifying. So yeah, wait, yeah, people exactly. would line up. So the, all the, all your classmates would line up with their like fruit roll ups in hand, and then they would come to you and say what? And yeah, would they say, would come and say, well, they, I don't even know if like any words were necessary. You just like put it on the table, and I'd say, oh, okay, uh, fruit roll ups, half a slice. Watermelon fruit roll-ups, that's no slices. That's disgusting. I don't even want that. <laughs> you know, granola, like a nutter butter dipped in chocolate uh, and rolled around in industrial marshmallows, that would be like a whole layer of a cake, right? And uh, and so people started – well, I mean, this it sort of spread like wildfire. I mean, the first few people got into it and everybody else said, oh, we got to get in on this cake deal. This is going to be great. And so uh, soon enough, like the ledger was, was growing, you know, day by day. And uh, – so I had sort of created this this speculative bubble. Like the whole other economy disappeared. Nobody was over there at the original table trying to trade. They wanted they wanted to they wanted to take part in this glorious future. So they were actually literally like literally like people stopped trading with each other and they were well, only in it for the cake. Uh there might I mean as I recall it, <laughs> I controlled the lunchroom. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did he control the lunchroom, Dave, uh, he had all the 20th century um, snack foods his heart could desire. And he would actually, he said he's kind of a hoarder, so he would like squirrel them away in like his locker <laughs> and at home. <laughs> and so he had all these like, he was at this ever-growing pile of like nutter butters and Cheetos and stuff. Um, and also he was no longer an, an outsider in this third grade lunchroom economy. So things were pretty good, but there was only one problem. So the cake was growing and the ledger was growing and nobody even questioned the ledger and they you know that was that was it was people sort of set aside their whatever doubts they might have had and then at a certain point I made the mistake I think in retrospect of allowing people if they had a good really good treat to customize the specific <laughs> piece of cake that they had that they were <laughs> trading their Cheetos or Nutter Butters for and I think what happened was sort of the mar- the trading had been light, and I sort of wanted to juice the market a little bit, and I offered this new sort of add-on, you know? Like I could have a corner slice or a rose, you know, decorated rose or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so from there on out, then the, tra- then the Trapper Keeper ledger started describing a cake where it would sort of be like a piece of lemon meringue next to German chocolate and then half a layer of red velvet and angel food and and – and chocolate mousse on top of it. So, I mean, it was just this insane fantasy cake. It sounds like kind of an awful cake in a way. I mean, having all those, (laughs) any one of those would be nice. But But it really is also like you were putting together specialty deals for people and like it was really like you had your custom OTC, you know, you had your bespoke derivative deal and then you had your straight ahead, you know, sort of like cake future. and Yeah, exactly. I was offering, listen, I was giving the people what they wanted. They wanted... They liked the idea of this cake, and I think they liked the very idea of it. And also, at a certain point, when I started to maybe have doubts that, oh yeah, this cake is a thousand feet tall, <laughs> um, that they just realized they were too far in. Like they were into this cake for forty bags of Cheetos and twenty <laughs> nutter butters, and so they couldn't just walk away from all their investments. You know, they sort of figured, well, let's just keep putting, you know, Cheetos into this thing and see what happens. <laughs> Josh said that um, it sort of the scheme went on actually longer than it probably should have, because that dream, even though it was sort of like this cake that was like you know five hundred 
layers thick and you know it had right. like made up of like you know all these different things um this the dream it promised was just hard for anybody to really let go of even at a certain point i believed in the cake even though i knew i had made it up you know because because i just imagined the hero's welcome i was going to receive when they wheeled this like technicolor uh, baked colossus like into the schoolyard <laughs> and how incredible it was going to be and so there was this mutually reinforcing psychology we all just bought into the idea of this cake and then what happened was eventually uh, w- another guy in my class, this kid named Spencer, um, he had been f- kind of the king of the original lunchroom economy because he always had three, four good, pretty good snacks in his lunch so he could trade up and he could hoard and he always sort of had the best position on the table. So, so he had done quite well, uh-huh. you know, and now – He's now he's left out. Here you, you come, know, this flim flam man. <laughs> yeah, I'm the flim flam guy, like the shyster hedge fund cake derivatives future guy, and it's kind of glamorous to hang out over there. And Mr. Fundamentals Spencer is over there saying, like, hey, the numbers don't add up on this thing. <laughs> right. He's in the spot market. <laughs> and he's like, I've been looking at his books. There's no way this cake could exist. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, Harry he, Markopoulos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he was the first one that did a back-of-the-envelope calculation and demonstrated that this cake would defy the laws of physics. <laughs> so so this is sort of where uh, Josh's third-grade financial confidence game takes on the exact contours of many of our current financial s- scandals. Like, basically, there's this group. They get taken in by this promise, this glorious promise. And then there's this skeptic, this sort of voice who's saying, like, this doesn't add up. And then these two viewpoints are sort of at odds for a while, and one tries to ignore the other. But eventually the, the truth side sort of wins out. So Spencer, um, you know, he doesn't relent. He still is telling people. Um, and, you know, he does sort of have the numbers on his side. Uh-huh. And he was always good at math. You know, <laughs> He's on the chess team. He's a rationalist. Everybody, you know, respects Spencer. And so they start listening. And eventually, you know, just as sort of easily the confidence was built, it eroded and a threshold was crossed and you know you could kind of see it coming but the market still continued and then it was one day to the next enough people didn't believe in the cake that you know nobody believed in the cake and the market just disappeared and people realized that this ledger was a sham and you know the cheetos were never coming back they had lost all their nutter butter investments the cake wasn't going to appear um and uh, and and actually, Josh told told me that told us that that the uh, that as in the current as in current financial scandals, um, the authorities, who in this case were the school administration, looked the other way while the whole crisis was unfolding. But once the truth came out, they felt compelled to act, um, and their punishment was calling Josh's parents. I got this whole lecture, and which was sort of some combination of biblical parables about, like, the Tower of Babel, or <laughs> I don't remember exactly what it was. And, um, and, and I sort of had, a, I had to learn a lesson. I definitely remember that. I remember getting a talking to about the cake. And so I was chastened by my parents. I don't remember with my fellow classmates really what happened. I mean, I just went back to the same old... I was on the outside. I was blowing a sad tune on my raisin whistle box, you know, banging my sardine can against a rock, trying to get my lunch, you know, trying to eat my lunch. And it was just like back to normal. 
<laughs> which is like <laughs> the saddest little <laughs> sort of image of him, you know. Uh, he he did avoid jail time. Though. He did avoid jail time, right? So yeah. that's true. One of my favorite things about that story is like sort of trying to imagine like if Josh were to actually go to his mother and be like, "We need to make a cake." <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and it needs to be six hundred layers. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, Alex, now we actually have another story about a guy named Spencer. Right, uh, Spencer Lepler, and he talked to uh, our very own Laura Conaway. Hey, Laura. Hey, um, thanks, guys. This guy, Spencer Lepler, is, um, well, he's looking for a job, actually. He's he's newly unemployed, and he tweeted us the other day about losing his job. Spencer is what's called an intern architect, which is kind of like a resident in a hospital. It means that you don't have your license all the way yet, but you can do architecture, and so he's been working, actually, for about four years. Spencer got laid off just about two weeks ago, not much more. And he says that most of the ads he's seeing for architecture jobs these days are only for people who have their licenses already. Because every project has to have a licensed architect. They're, they're the ones you can't do without if your staff has to get smaller, the licensed people. Yeah, you still have to have a licensed person or else you can't go anywhere. So Spencer says he's decided to use all of his free time that he has right now to prep for his licensing exam. And in any case, it is a lot more fun than actually spending every minute looking for work. The most depressing part of the whole situation has been when I call someone who I've gotten a contact through a work associate who says, you know, or just someone that I've cold called and emailed, and they come back and say, you know, you've got a really impressive resume, I'd love to hire you, but I've just laid off 20% of my staff, and my friends who are in their 40s don't have jobs. Wow. And that's, you know, you can hear the, you can just hear the distress in their voice, and that's just the worst part. What do you suppose that's about? Um, I think everyone's just fearful that they're going to be next. That it doesn't, you know, if you, that from my point of view, it looks like a lot of people are just living with the fear that they're the next person on the chopping block, they could be the next one gone, and then they'll be in my shoes. You don't, sort of as a matter of mood or feeling, sound discouraged, but you've pulled back a touch from searching for work. A touch. Yeah, if I ha- I've pulled back a touch, because if I don't, I will get discouraged. So, Laura, the, the Spencer is, is sort of... Um... He illustrates a sort of a larger macroeconomic category a little bit, doesn't he? Well, sort of. I mean, there is a category the Bureau of Labor Statistics famously keeps called discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. And last month, February, there were about, they think, 731,000 of them. And those are people who have really completely stopped looking for a job. And Spencer is not there yet, but you could kind of see how you could start to get there after several hundred fruitless contacts. Right. He was he was a discouraged worker. He wasn't quite a discouraged worker in the ter- in the in the sense of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's right. No capital D there for him yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, but heading there. Um yeah, and, and and that's something that a lot of people do actually is when when the economy turns bad, they go back and try to get extra training or go back to school and that's another thing that a lot of people are doing nowadays. Yeah, it's not yeah. your fault that the economy is crummy and sometimes you just have to hold out and and wait for a while, maybe even a long while. Right, exactly. We will be back podcasting on Wednesday with, I hope, we're hoping uh, to get this together, an extended look at what in the world is going on with AIG. Until then, stick with us on the blog. We're at npr.org slash money. Send us your photos, your stories, your questions to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening. I know a guy who's tough but sweet.